If you have a Bible, you can turn to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Micah, it's in the Old Testament. It is a minor prophet just by length of book, not because of the word he says. Micah chapter 6 is where we will begin this morning. I remember as a kid always um, having this problem after leaving church. Uh, there would always be this debate from the back seat immediately after leaving church with me and my brothers and my parents, and here came the barrage of trying to convince my parents that we needed to go out to eat. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've had this battle recently, but the whole goal was to convince my parents that what we had in the pantry was not good enough, and we would want to always go to Fazoli's. It's like this like cheap Italian, okay? Fast food Italian, unlimited breadsticks. That's what me and my brothers would always want to go. Is we loved going out to eat. One of my favorite places as a kid to go out to eat, though, was none only than the, the one and only Cracker Barrel. As a kid, Cracker Barrel was the best place on earth, right? And so what, ha- what would happen, though, is we would have a strict, harsh warning between my brothers and I right in the parking lot, okay? Rem- a quick reminder between my parents where they would say, listen, this is how we're going to conduct ourselves in public, okay? And if you don't break anything in the gift shop, if you don't throw a brother into the fireplace after losing in checkers, if you don't shove a golf tee up a brother's nose, by the end of dinner, there will be a reward at the end, Right? And it would be one of those 10-cent candy sticks that I would choose Tutti Frutti every time, okay? And so this was like the biggest picture of what I knew of warning followed by hope. As a kid, this made total sense to me, and that is what the book of Micah is. It is warning followed by hope. Strict, harsh warning in chapters 1 and 2. Micah is speaking on behalf of God, and he gives big warnings, big accusations, calling out specific cities of their injustice. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we see Micah giving harsh warning about false prophets that are taking money just to basically, whatever you wanted to hear, a prophet would take money and say, yeah, here you go, and give a blessing. The Israel's leaders were unjust. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we see that God's justice is going to come in the nation of, Israel, of Assyria. And God's people will again be sent into exile, into Babylonian exile. But at the end, we're getting to the end of the book. There is hope at the end. And so let's pick up in Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to read the Bible, not just to finish, but would you help us to change? May your word be transformative this morning as we study it, as we look to it. Speak to us this morning, God, as we, may we feel conviction of sin, may we hear what you have for us this morning. Thank you for your word, and it's in Jesus' name, amen. A couple questions for you to get us starting. He is thinking, uh, the question number one is, does an orchestra need a conductor? After all, right, musicians have the sheet music in front of them. What does that gentleman or that lady do with a little stick? Sometimes it feels like the people are actually just looking at their music and playing. But what if everyone in the orchestra played whatever they felt like? Played whatever came to their heart or whatever they wanted to do? It would be absolute chaos. Question number two is how do we explain the chaos in our world today? Well, The biblical answer, I believe, is that we have neglected and rejected the idea of our need for a conductor. We have been created by God and for God, yet we are separated from God because of sin, and our hearts have led us astray to whatever truth we want to hear. It's pretty easy to find. Whatever truth you want to hear, you can easily find it in our world today. A conductor now seems oppressive to us, that it would be stifling, that it would be hindering of my own creativity and whatever I want for my life. I don't think it would be hard for you and I to agree that our world is out of sorts. It is fractured and it is fearful. And in this world spinning out of control, we look to God for what is true, for what is right, and for what is wrong. What is Micah saying? Look in verse 1. Here he says, hear what the Lord says. He's saying, listen to what God has for you. Not Micah's own words, but what, the, what is the word of Lord? God is speaking, and he is stepping into the octagon, if you will, with the people. Because he has reason to believe, reason to contend, reason to indict them. That's a lawyer word, right? Okay, so indictment means that it is a formal charge or accusation of a serious crime. Like a courtroom scene Here, we are on the side of the defense. Why would God be so hostile to the people? Why would God be that way? The answer is just a few pages before, if you flip over a page, chapter 2, verse 8. We see why, is that the people are wicked and evil. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Point number one this morning, if you're a note taker, it's on the Westwood app or you can just write it down, but point number one is that God confronts evil. God always confronts evil. This is the warning. This is judgment is coming. And God's judgment is coming through that oppressive nation called Assyria. Don't you just love justice? I just love it, right? Like this is why there's like a million courtroom TV shows, right? This is why there's like a, like a week-long marathon of cops, 
right? You know, you can turn on TV and you're just like, oh, justice. Yes, I love seeing movies stir this up. Just that feeling, that desire for justice. We have this. We long for justice. Something inside you cheers for justice. Sometimes I think I could be a pretty good judge. I feel like it would be kind of easy, an easy job. Maybe, uh, maybe not so, but to give you some examples, it'd just be really easy to be like, okay, person here charged with breaking in an entry. Boom, 20 years. Whoop, next. Okay, and it's like, person, this person here, guilty of assault. Whoop, 40 years. See ya. This person here, okay, we have a rapist in front of us. Life in prison, easy. Gone. Mass murder, uh, capital punishment, death penalty, you. Boom, gone. See ya. Sinner before a holy God. De- oh. Sinner before a holy God. See, we love justice except when it comes to ourselves. A lot of times we think that my sin is like Kevin McAllister stealing a toothbrush. You know what, Lord, how about um, shoplifting, guilty, uh, I'll take 40 hours of community service and be on my way. We view our sin that way, but in response to a holy God, that is not so, church. One time I had a student who took one semester of philosophy come up to me, and he said, Corey, why does, uh, why does bad stuff happen to good people? I said, ask the question right. He said, what are you talking about? Why, why does the bad stuff in our world happen to good people? I don't know. It's a simple question. I said to him, I said, the real question would be how in the world, of the pre- of, in the presence of a holy God, a God who is holy, who is set apart, how does that God not crush me for the sins I did yesterday? How is that possible? Good people. Are you good? Am I good? No. See, it's a reminder that God is just and he is holy, even when it comes to ourselves. But here's the hope we have. Here's the hope. It gets, it gets better. It gets good news. But here we go. Look at this. Point number two is that God's character and promises are more powerful than human evil. Praise God. God's character and his promises are more powerful than human evil. Look at the reminders he gives. Look at this in verse three. He says, oh, my people. Hear the tenderness in the Lord's voice to the people and to you this morning. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And then he gives this list, these rememberings of the Lord's righteous acts. It's a recalling of what the Lord has done in their past. He says, I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. He's saying, hey, do you remember what it was like? Do you remember the exodus? Do you remember being in slavery? I delivered you from that. Next, he says, do you remember the leaders I gave you? I gave you Moses. I gave you Aaron. I gave you Miriam. I gave you those. He says, do you remember Balak and Balaam? He said, that was when I turned curses into blessings. Do you remember that? And he says, do you remember Shittim to Gilgal? And he might say, that just sounds like stinky cities, but that is where I haltered the waters. He said, that's when, remember when the priests, they put their feet in the Jordan River and the water stopped. It's a, and you walked across on dry ground again, again. 
you did that. He's rem- rem- making them remember these things. So that what? Look at that, verse 5. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. That you may know them. This isn't a history lesson so they can pass the test later. This isn't a review that God is giving. It's so they can know his character and his promises. This kind of knowledge is transforming. It's knowledge that changes your life. When you stop to think about what God has done for you, it is transforming. Now, I know many of you guys in this room have had adversity. And if not, adversity is coming for all of us. Adversity is going to knock on the door. Walk through hard times. Times when you feel God is distant. Times when you feel like God isn't there. Times when you feel like God couldn't care less about your situation. Times when you feel like God is punishing you. When you feel like God is ignoring you. When you feel this way about God. When you feel that way about God. Your feelings can go crazy whispering lie after lie after lie. And when the feelings crash and burn, it's what do you know? What do you know about God? Not what you feel. What do you know? Do you know about God's character and what he has shown to you? Remember, I was scrolling my phone as we all sometimes do, and I came across a a Facebook story of one of my old baseball coaches. It was a um, Coach Wes from T-ball all the way till high school. This was one of my coaches, and he had two sons. Their name were John Wes and Gardner. They were my best friends. We played T-ball together, spent the night at each other's houses. We were my best friends. And just recently, their dad posted on Facebook a remembering of what the Lord had done for him. It was uh, about eight years ago, John West, one of the boys, one of my friends, healthy, athletic, in great shape. He was 25 years old, and he went for a run on the University of Kentucky's campus. And on that campus, and as he was running, he collapsed. About a few more steps, and he would have been hidden behind trees, but there was something going on, an event going on. And in that time, there was a nurse and a doctor present at that event. They administered CPR to him until the ambulance got there and shocked his heart back into rhythm. For two days, he was in a coma on a ventilator. And once finding out that the doctors said, oh, you have a twin brother. And he said, yeah, he's right here. His name's Gardner. And they said, we're going to run Gardner through some tests because we believe what stopped your heart is a rare syndrome called Brugada syndrome. They tested his brother and found that exact syndrome, put him through a test, and his heart failed. Both of them walked out with ICDs implanted into their chests. So now they are, again, twins again, and they both have what looks like, it looks like a little battery pack almost under their skin. And two months later, Gardner, the older brother, was going on a run, again, athletic family, running, collapsed, passes out goes to the doctor and they said, your ICD just went off and it saved your life. And so this dad, my old baseball coach, was remembering the grace of God. He knows the character and promises of God because both of his sons are still here today. Eight years later, this father has not forgotten. Why? Because he knows. There's a great hymn, "It It Is Well With My Soul, Maybe you've sung that before, and you remember that if you were raised in church. And the original lyrics say this. They say, thou hast taught me to know it is well with my soul. 
over years, some people thought that it'd be a good idea to change that lyric to, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Church family, you can say it is well with your soul, but do you know it? Do you know the character of God towards you? So let's look at the court scene in verse 1. It says, plead your case. And then this is how the people respond in verse 6. Verse 6, it says this, With what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That's special. Not just a newborn one, right? This is be worth more. How about a year old calf? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? With 10,000 rivers of oil, shall I give my firstborn? Hello, like Isaac. Hello, maybe I'll give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. This is how the people respond. And it isn't these sacrifices, it isn't that these sacrifices and devotions aren't important or irrelevant, but what is valued more so than what they do is their obedience. The people are saying, look at what we're good at. We're pretty good at sacrifices. Let's up those. We can do more sacrifices. Let's do bigger and better ones. Let me read you this other, this other passage, this similar passage in Amos, a few ver- chapters back, that God says, and this is Amos chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. As I was studying and reading this, there is a paraphrase in modern language of that same passage in Amos, and this is what it says. It says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects or your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of the noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. I just put that into perspective for me. And I don't know about you. You might have not have sacrificed a calf recently. Maybe some of you are like, I'll give them a firstborn right now. Okay. But depending on how they're acting, but the people are simply asking a simple question. They're saying, what's the shortest way to get back in the good standing with God? Lord, give me the shortcut. Let's get back right as soon as possible. Let's go. I want to get back right with you. I want to fix this. Let me fix it. Let me fix it up. And we do the same thing. Lord, what do I need to start? What do I need to stop? Do I need to start going to church more? Maybe I need to start to pray more. How about I need to uh, read my Bible more? Maybe I'll stop cussing. Maybe I'll stop looking at pornography. Maybe I'll stop drinking, smoking, vaping. Maybe I will stop gossiping. Maybe I'll stop that affair that no one knows about. Maybe I'll stop lying. And we do this and we go in this circle of what should I do? What should I don't do? We do this to show evidence of our commitment to God. People come all the time right, to church and say, what are the programs of the church? Which all of them here at Westwood, I love, by the way. What are the programs? I'll do all the programs. I want to do it all. Let me go all. We're always there, always there. We're always going to do this, do that. Church family, we don't please God by just finding more Christian things to do. 
the people are trying to find a way to get back in good standing with God in the shortest way possible. If I do this, Lord, then are we good? Are we okay? God, give me the shortcut. And shortcuts, I don't know for you or for me, they never really work out that well. You try to take a shortcut driving and you're going to get stopped by a train anyway, right? And maybe there's someone in the room that needs to hear this this morning. Uh, If you're trying to take a shortcut in the kitchen, just by turning the stove up hotter doesn't mean it will cook faster, okay? Right? We try to take these shortcuts. The people are trying to take a shortcut to God. And the tempting, the tempting thing for us, hear this church, hear this this morning. The tempting thing for us, the shortcut for us, will always be more religion rather than deeper relationship. That's what it'll always be. That is the temptation. More religion over deeper relationship with Jesus. And church, let me remind us too, that if, you th- if you're thinking, if I do this, if I stop this, this is going to make the Lord happy with me, there is one act in all of history that has fully pleased the Lord, and that is Jesus, his life, crucified and resurrection. Walking with God isn't some chore that we have to do reluctantly, but it's a joy we get to experience through Jesus. And now the haymaker at the end of this chapter in the verse that you might have known that has been often misunderstood, hanging on a wall or printed on a t-shirt, is Micah 6, 8. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What is justice? It is an action for doing what is right. And if justice is the action, then the attitude is that of kindness and mercy. This is the attitude we have towards that and towards others. Kindness in our justice. How then are we to do this? Acting justly, loving mercy, loving kindness. And it says the how is humbly. Humbly we walk in humility doing so. And there are many ways that this can be misunderstood. And I want to share those with you. This verse is often, point number one in in this this specific verse is that it's often attempted without the gospel. It is often attempted without the gospel. Look at verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord? How do I do it? Well, obviously it's verse eight, right? If that The thought that if a good God exists, he will reward good people for doing their best. And part of doing their best is acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly, right? Do you see how easily we got there? This verse cannot be attempted without the gospel. You need to understand that. Number two, this verse can falsely be put in place of the gospel. And hear this, church, this morning, as a communicator of God's word, I have to be clear on this. Do not hear this morning. I can't have you walking out the doors saying the goal is to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly, and you say, sweet, I'll take a shot at that. Don't hear that message. You can't walk out of here saying, I'm going to put this in place of the gospel of Jesus. We would miss it. Naturally, in our sin, we want so desperately to always contribute to our own standing before God, don't we? We want, to, we want to help. Justice, kindness, humility, I'll work on those and I'll walk out and I'll try my best. 
That's not what it is. It is number three. This verse is only possible by the gospel. Only possible by the gospel. We walk with your God. With Jesus. Micah is is not showing us a path to salvation or acceptance with God. That is good news. That should get you excited. That should make you thankful that, because can I tell you right now, if it were up to me, if it were standing, if I was standing before the Lord and it was up to me about my justice, my kindness, and my humility, I'm failing in all three. And that's just my own personal assessment, not alone the people that actually know me. right? How just have I been? How kind and merciful have I been? How humble have I been? Justice, mercy, and kindness, and humility, those are of the Lord. Can I tell you that the answer is the Christmas story. The answer is just a few. If you're looking at Micah 6, just skip back one chapter. Look at this, Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth from me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, uh, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she is, who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus. Do you see Jesus? We read the Old Testament in the light of what we know in the New. Jesus. Do you see him? Praise God, the Father sees the Son instead of us. Praise God. Justice, mercy, and humility in verse 8 are not things that contribute to our justification, but evidence of our justification. Don't get hung up on that word, justified. You know what waffle fried is. You can know what justified is. Okay, so justified. Justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. You are justified because God sees Jesus instead of you. Jesus in your place. That is the gospel by which we live out Micah 6.8. The name Micah means who is like God. If you ever wondered what your standing is or how you'd be received by Jesus, skip over a page and look at chapter 7. This is how the, bur- the book ends. Micah 7, verse 18. He says, who is, like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sin into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. And you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. We have a hope, church, and that hope is in Jesus. May we act justly, love kindness, and walk humbly with Jesus in light of the gospel, in light of 
the grace shown to us by Jesus. Who is like him?